So the series that we've been going through, How God Makes Men, has basically been a series of like character studies. Um, and I think you've had the opportunity to look at the lives of men like Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Gideon, David. Um, and this week, we have the opportunity to examine the life and the character of a man named Solomon. So as I was looking through the scriptures this week, or not just this week, but kind of examining the life of Solomon, preparing for tonight, I was amazed <clears throat> at how similar um, my life is to Solomon's. And before you start laughing too much, no, I'm not claiming to be the wisest person who ever lived, far from it. Um, but in a number of other ways, I saw that I struggle with a lot of the same things that Solomon struggled with. And as I prepared for tonight, I was really just convicted and encouraged. And I hope that my goal is to pass on to you <clears throat> what God's taught me and reminded me uh, through this study. And that, so then you'll take that, whatever God teaches you, pass it on to other men who will be able to teach others also. I think that's a big point of what we're doing tonight. Uh, before we dig in, I want to tell you a little bit about my background. Uh, I was born and raised in North Carolina. And every now and then that North Carolina accent comes out and I uh, can't hide it too much. I don't have much of an accent because we lived overseas and spoke different languages and stuff like that. Um, but every now and then it'll come out and I'll say, I'm fixing to go over yonder and do this or that. And uh, people look at me and say, hey, you're not from here. And I'm not. So, but now we're in Northeast Ohio and enjoy being here. And um, so I ra was raised in a Christian home, had Christian parents, uh, was saved at a young age, uh, like many of you attended church every time the doors were open, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night visitation, you know, Saturday new morning prayer breakfast, I mean, we were there all the time, and by the, but by the time I was in high school, I was pretty involved and pretty busy with all the church things you could imagine, um, but my heart really wasn't in it. So even though I was surrounded by people that love the Lord, um, myself as this all-wise 16 to 21-year-old, um, which you could imagine the level of wisdom that I had at that, at that point, um, I played the game, right? I wore the mask, I gave the appearance, but my heart was always pursuing something else. Uh, it was either friends, entertainment, pleasure, girls, so when I got to high school and when I was in college, I experienced and experimented with everything I could to find happiness, uh, to find satisfaction. So truth, like I, I was pursuing happiness <clears throat> and satisfaction really in, any, in anything except God. And I'm so happy that we didn't have social media back then. I think a number of us probably, probably would say, yep, I'm so glad that my kids can't look back at my feed from 25 years ago and see what an idiot I was. Um, but my heart was divided. I went to church, even sang in the choir, but then I also went to all the parties. Uh, I did all the things that teenagers and young adults do. I was just talking to somebody earlier today that was like, yeah, I would, I would walk out of church and go throw up over the bridge because I was out drinking the, <laughs> the night before. So uh, that's kind of what I was pursuing, that just anything to satisfy me at that age. And I was always looking for more. And it was like chasing after something that I would get like so close to it. And then when I would go to grab it, it would just vanish. 
and the puff of smoke. Every time I thought I found the secret to happiness, to being truly satisfied, again, it was just like it was just out of reach. So eventually, praise the Lord, God got a hold of my heart, um, really turned my life around, and I truly surrendered my entire being to God. And the lesson that I learned that I'm sure a lot of you have learned as well is this. And we're going to keep repeating this thought all night long, or at least as long as you're here. Um, It is impossible for us to find lasting happiness in anything, in any pursuit apart from God. It is impossible for us to find lasting happiness in any pursuit apart from God. So while that statement is absolutely true, I don't ever want to stand here and say, just take my word for it. Uh, Because you don't need to take my word for it. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what I say. I want to point you to what does matter. So we're going to examine Solomon's life together and see the conclusions that he comes to uh, that God's recorded for us in his word and to see if if my conclusion will match up to what Solomon uh, teaches us. So to understand Solomon's story, though, or his character, we've got to look at his story. So I'm going to invite you to turn to 1 Kings. We're going to be in 1 Kings for the most part tonight. We might jump around a little bit. It'll be on the screen um, if we move out of 1 Kings. But <clears throat> as you're finding 1 Kings, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through kind of the, the narrative of Solomon's life, at least up to a point. And as you're reading tonight, and really as you read the Bible anytime, you need to always ask yourself this question, why is this here? Why is this story in the Bible? Why is this event here? Why is this text here? Because it's there for a reason. So I want to ask you that as we look at Solomon's life, I want you to be thinking in the back of your mind, why is all this information here? And at, at the end of our time, I want you to be able to answer answer that or think through that answer. Why did God choose to put this here? So Solomon was David's son. Uh, His mom was Bathsheba. We're going to be starting in 1 Kings chapter 2, and then we'll kind of just go chapter 2, chapter 3, and then chapter 11, uh, if you're wanting to get your fingers ready or your tabs ready. Um, So David's son with Bathsheba, um, he was the king of Israel after David. First Kings chapter one tells us that David made Solomon the king. Therefore, our Lord King David has made Solomon the king. <clears throat> now, if you know anything about David's family life, you know the house that Solomon grew up in had its share of issues. You have stuff that went on with David's daughter and brothers and then how Absalom tried to take over from David and did a lot of really crazy stuff. So Solomon is kind of growing up watching all of this happen and or at least experience some of it happen and then someone else was actually in line, actually going to be king and then David uh, said no 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 Solomon is going to be king so first kings chapter 1 verse 43 Solomon is made king all right so in chapter 2 verse 1 David gets some, gives some instructions to Solomon all right so David had Solomon with Bathsheba Solomon is made king of Israel. Now David gives him him some instructions. Let's look at that in chapter 2, verse 1. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. 
Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. <clears throat> Pretty simple instructions. David gives these instructions to Solomon. Keep your eyes on the Lord, pursue God, obey his word, and the things will go well for you and for the kingdom. So those are David's instructions. All right, now in chapter three, Solomon's initial decisions as a king. Chapter three starts by saying Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, he took Pharaoh's daughter and he brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the um, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father only, or but he also sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So let's stop there for a minute. Okay, Solomon's initial decisions as king. Remember what David told Solomon? Pursue God, obey his word, and things will go well with you and the kingdom. Now in chapter three, Solomon married who? A non-Yahweh worshiper from Egypt. Now maybe she proselytized and became a Yahweh worshiper, but Deuteronomy 7 and chapter 17 prohibited the marriage of, of foreigners uh, in this way, and, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. So he married a non-Yahweh worshiper for one, and then he worships in the high places, even though the ark is in Jerusalem. And now maybe you're thinking, well, you know, Colorado is a high place. Like, what's wrong with that? People, people live there. People worship there. The high places, as a lot of you know, were, were these pagan Canaanite worship centers, a lot of them like fertility type of worship centers that were rededicated to the worship of God during the time of Joshua. Now, this location where Solomon goes is a place called Gibeon, and it had some significance. That's where the tabernacle had been kept and where the original bronze altar had been built and had been placed. So Solomon's decision, first of all, it's contrary to the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 12 um, expresses that, that it, which he knew was against that because these high places were supposed to be destroyed and they weren't supposed to be kept. But in the conquest of the land, again, they were to be destroyed. Instead, they said, you know what? We're not going to destroy them. We're going to redeem them. Sounds good, right? Saul did something like that too and it didn't turn out so well. Instead, they redeemed them, a decision that, that would reap like repercussions for generations. So after the conquest, you see the people constantly returning back to the high places. If you read through the Old Testament, that's always a recurring thing. And they went to the high places and they worshiped. And then oftentimes, it's not God, it's not Yahweh who they are worshiping. So <clears throat> why did Solomon do this? All right, why did Solomon go to the high places? In Deuteronomy 12, Moses gave instructions for them to tear down all those high places. God had chosen Jerusalem. That's why the ark was there, as the place to worship. But because there was no single place for worship, Solomon was like, well, we need to go somewhere where there is. 
So let's go to Gibeon. So his desire for worship, we, we can admire, right? His, his intentions, I think, were sincere. He goes to the most famous place to worship because where else would you worship God? So something to point out here, as you read through the King, Kings and Chronicles, um, both are giving you like a similar storyline of the kings and the history of Israel. There's a difference. So the book of Kings, um, it gives a pretty detailed account and it is very favorable to David, kind of comparing all the kings to David, kind of looking back like this one's not like David, this one's not like David. When you go to Chronicles though, the, the writer of Chronicles like love David. And it's really hard for you to find so much, too much negative about David in Chronicles. Some of it's there. The reason is, is that when you look at the Hebrew Bible, Chronicles is at the end of the book. It's like our revelation. And so it's at the end of the book. And throughout the whole Testament, through Kings and, and so forth, there's always this thought of, when is the next king coming that's like David? When is the promised seed of David going to come is, is it Solomon? Well, probably not. We're going to find out tonight. But who is it? Who is it? So the writer of Chronicles is writing, and as he comes to the end of the Hebrew Bible, he's asking the reader, when will this promised king come that was like David? So there's this constant comparison. Is this king like David? Well, no. Um, so kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we're looking through this passage in 1 Kings because I think the writer is trying to help us understand that Solomon is doing things that are not like David. <clears throat> so look at ch- chapter 3, verse 3 again. Solomon loved the Lord. Great, right? Absolutely wonderful statement. He walked in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Now, I think it's interesting that the writer puts this here. Um, It's actually some foreshadowing that I think he puts here on purpose. Uh, Keep in mind that in chapter 3.3, we're told that Solomon loved the Lord. That's important. But he is also sacrificing. He's making offerings at the high places. So why do I point that out? I think the writer of chapter 3 puts that here to help help you kind of make a, a mental note of Solomon's character and, and the core of who he is. Yes, he loved the Lord, but he also made sacrifices at the high places. I think you see a little bit of double-mindedness, maybe some moral uh, inconsistencies there as we move ahead. And I think you'll see that develop. So yes, he's the son of David, right? He's seated on the throne. He makes some mistakes like his dad did, but in the end, his, I think we'll see the heart of his character was not like David's. David was a man who pursued God's own heart. Solomon will be, end up a man being who, who pursues some very different things. So let's go back to the list of kind of Solomon's bio here. All right, so next, Solomon asks for wisdom. 1 Kings 3, verse 5 uh, again, if you're still there in your Bible, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream and, and said, ask what I shall give you. Hey, in verse 9, give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil and who is able to govern this great, uh, your great people. And then you look at verse 10. 
And it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a, wis- a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. It's pretty sweet. Solomon asks for wisdom and God, God gives it to him, but then God gives him pretty much everything else in the world that you could ask for. Uh, kind of as a, as, a, as a bonus. So Solomon asks for wisdom. All right, the next big item in his bio would be an overview of his accomplishments. And if you want to turn with me, you can. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, you don't have to. I have a list of his, his accomplishments that will be shown up here. But let me show you at least from Scripture where some of them came from. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 4. Again, we're just kind of building a case for who Solomon is and his bio right now. Uh, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 4. And I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest, grown trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did, not keep, uh, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. So Solomon built a temple. He was a Bible book writer, a zoologist, a botanist, a teacher, a global influencer. He did everything. Solomon did and could do anything and everything he wanted, and yet... If you turn to Ecclesiastes with me, look at verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done, which means I reflected on all of my social experiments and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He had everything a man could want, but he wasn't happy. He realized that everything he pursued, pleasure, satisfaction, apart from God, was empty. It was worthless. It was a frustrating pursuit. It was like running out in that windstorm we had a couple weeks ago and trying to grab the wind and stop it from knocking your house down or ripping your shingles off. It's a vain pursuit. It's as if Solomon was chasing after satisfaction, worth, lasting happiness, and then right as he went to grab it, it vanished like a puff of smoke, and it was gone. Okay, Solomon may have been the wisest man on the planet, but there was something that he had, he had to learn from experience, and that's really what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is about. 
it's one long experiment to do one thing, find lasting happiness or purpose in life without God. And throughout all of Solomon's experiences and pursuits, he learns this very valuable truth that we've already stated. I want to say it again. God has created us in such a way that it is impossible for us to find lasting happiness in anything apart from him. God has created you in such a way that it is impossible for you to find lasting happiness in anything other than him. It's impossible for us to find lasting happiness apart from God. So when we think of Solomon, what happened? How did he get off track? The same way we get off track. By chasing after something we, we were never intended to catch. Right, chasing after something that we're not intended to catch. We all get off track. So, if you're trying to find meaning or lasting happiness in your pursuit of pleasure, of accomplishment, of recognition, of praise, then you're going to be sorely disappointed uh, and pretty frustrated. You might be able to see it, right? You can feel it, you can taste it, you can ex- experience its effects, but you will never be able to grab hold of it. It'll always be just out of reach, it'll always just be a vapor. And I'm sure most of us in here tonight are not trying to get off track. I'd like to believe that none of us in here are intentionally trying to get, go down the wrong pathway that leads to frustration and depression, but it does happen. And we need the help of faithful brothers to point out when we're off track and help us pursue right things. And that's one of the reasons why we're here, right? To help one another confront sin, to get back on track, to grow in grace so that we can be able to be the men that God has called us to be, the men that God has created us to be. So Solomon went from speaking with God and asking for wisdom to to the point where he seems to be holding his hands out, looking for happiness and, and meaning with just his head in his hands. Maybe you're there tonight. I don't know all of your life circumstances, but maybe you're there right now. Maybe you know, or maybe you know someone who is there. Well, tonight's conversation is for you. So I would encourage you to try your hardest not to tune out. So we've heard a little bit of Solomon's story. Now let's find out where Solomon got off track. All right. Solomon's first mistake was to pursue satisfaction. He was literally looking for love in all the wrong places. So pursuing satisfaction. And before we read, get into chapter 11, let's just, let's just pray together for a minute. Dear Lord and God, again, as we open, continue reading your word tonight, as we uh, come to this next section, uh, just to see uh, the path that Solomon took, God, we just ask for your help in understanding your word and Um, applying it and just seeing what you'd have to teach us tonight. God, I pray that your spirit would uh, just guide each one of our hearts, would illumine your word to us and help us understand and 
not not understand just to puff us up and help us know things, but to understand so that we can live it out and apply it and help one another. God, thank you for all of these men that are here. And I pray that you would help us to hold one another accountable to grow in grace and understanding and um, just help one another become uh, more like you. And so God, we pray that you would continue to change us into your image and... uh, No matter what that process looks like, God, we invite that and we ask that you would uh, just help us uh, draw closer to you this evening. We'll thank you for the opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. So pursuing satisfaction, right? Power, control, fame, riches, pleasure, indulgence, you name it. Okay, so look at 1 Kings chapter 11 and then you're not gonna really probably turn anywhere else um, unless you want to. So 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 1. Now, as you turn there, remember, if you've read through the book recently, chapter 10 ends with this overview of Solomon's wealth. Remember, that's not what Solomon asked for, but it's what he got. It's what he received, as well as wisdom. So it's this long list of Solomon's accomplishments, of how awesome he was and how rich he was and how much people thought he was, thought he was great. And then you come to chapter 11 and it begins, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, the Hittite women, from the nations concerning uh, which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love, He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines and his wives turned away his heart. So there's a lot there. We can only talk about a little bit of it, but remember back in chapter three, verse three, where it says that Solomon loved the Lord, but now something has changed. Okay, the writer of this text in Hebrew, the word king is like in all caps, bold, underlined, it's emphasized the way that it's written. So you could read it like, now King Solomon. No, now the king, like the king himself, the very king that is supposed to be like David, loved many foreign women. Now, <clears throat> I'm pretty sure Solomon didn't wake up one day and say, you know what? I'm going to go marry a bunch of foreign women and adopt their gods and be a total pagan. I mean, maybe. But I doubt most of us wake up and say that in the morning. Um, But that's kind of what happened. What we're reading, I think, here in 1 Kings 11 is the result of a series of small decisions a series of small concessions, a series of justifications that have cumulatively led him to the place of where he is. Now, it's the same with us, right? Rarely do we get out of bed in the morning in, in, into like a bad situation. It's usually from a series of many bad situations that have led to where we are. So as the king, Solomon knew he wasn't supposed to do this. He, he should have known Deuteronomy 17, 17 prohibited that as far as marrying foreign women. Solomon broke that rule. Okay, he loved many foreign women. Plus, they were, th- th- he loved many women, first of all, and then they were foreign women. They're, I mean, we understand, right? He was a king. There, there's politics involved. 
You know, the red party had to stay red. The blue party had to stay blue. I mean, they had to, they had to maintain their stuff. There was a political dimension to all his wives. They were from all the surrounding nations, and I'm sure there were diplomatic reasons for royal marriages. I mean, we get it. You, you understand, right? Like, come on. But we see how easy it is to justify our sin. Men, in our minds, we, you could justify almost anything. I can talk myself into buying anything I want to buy. <laughs> right, can't you? It's easy to tell my wife, no, I don't think we can afford that. Oh, but we need this. Like, I got to have it, right? It's so easy. So it's for the good of the nation, right? We need 700 wives. It's for the good of Israel. It's for the good of the company, right? It, it's for the good of my career, Right? We make a lot of concessions. We make excuses. We justify what we're doing. We convince ourselves it's for the greater good. And then we wake up one day, we look in the mirror and realize that we've become the exact opposite of the thing that we had hoped we would be. When we look at Solomon's story, we see a man that had every opportunity, wisdom, fame, fortune, power, but in his pursuit of lasting happiness, he found himself utterly frustrated. Why? Because he was seeking satisfaction in something he was never designed to find it in. He was seeking satisfaction in something he wasn't designed to be satisfied by. Solomon pursued fulfillment in power, control, riches, business success, pleasure, I mean, he had 700 wives. Like, I'm good with one. 700 and 300 concubines. Now, okay, I know what you're thinking. How in the world, actually, I probably don't know what you're thinking from the, from the, from the, <laughs> from the laughter, but um, I'm gonna assume I know what you're thinking. And how can I compare myself with Solomon in this area. I mean, come on. Solomon slept with at least a thousand women regularly. I could never get that far off track. Let me remind you what Jesus said, Matthew 5, 28. But if I say to you that everyone, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. How many of us have looked lustfully at a woman? Don't, don't raise your hands. Because we, if we were honest, they would all be up. How, how often? Once a week? Once a day? Once an hour? So, let me do a little math with you. If you were to look lustfully at a woman once a day, that's all, just once a day, for three years, you would have committed 1,095 acts of adultery, according to what Jesus said. In Jesus' eyes, we're no different than Solomon. Now, I don't know exactly what you struggle with, 
But I do know that we're all men. And every single one of us struggles with lust on one level or another. I've talked to, to men that I've known over the years that are in their 70s and early 80s. They still struggle. It doesn't go away. That's right. So every single one of us struggles. So I know I find myself often in situations where I just have to be in a conversation and I'm thinking in the back of my mind, don't look down, don't look down, don't look down, don't look down, don't look down. Like I'm kind of listening, but I'm thinking, don't look down, don't look down, don't look down. Um, Because I know, I know how horribly sinful I am. We're men, right? For the most part, we're attracted visually. So, but if it's not women that you're lusting after something else, right? Success, money, power, influence, contentment. Okay, let me get another self-evaluation moment. How many times, how often have you pursued satisfaction in anything other than God? Once a month? Twice a month? Once a day? Here's a sobering thought that kind of hit me in the face this week. Each and every time we even think about pursuing satisfaction in something other than God, we commit spiritual adultery. And here's another thought that goes along with that one. Each and every time we place something in our hearts as more important than God, we commit spiritual idolatry. Once a month, once a week, once a day. First Kings 11 verse two says, Solomon clung to these in love. Now, <clears throat> again, let me kind of geek out with you for a minute. Um, that word, clung, is the same exact word Moses used in Genesis chapter two, verse 24, when he was talking about the marriage relationship. How many weddings have we been to, even our own, it says, and the man will leave his mother and father and do what? Cling to his wife. Leave and cleave, right? That's the principle. So the same exact word is used here. The same word that's used when God was initiating the marriage covenant, the marriage relationship is used here. It's almost as if the writer is saying, look back at Genesis chapter two, look back at the garden when God created this relationship. And in in this picture of this deep attachment of love to your spouse, which resulted in a one flesh relationship. So yeah, what, what God designed as a way for man and a woman to become closer and for them to become closer to God, Solomon has now abused to the point where he has become one flesh with over 1,000 women. Remember what Jesus said about lusting in our hearts. We might not have physically done all that Solomon did, but we're no less guilty. So as Solomon loved and clung to, became one flesh with his pagan wives, he also loved and clung to their pagan gods, their pagan religions. Here's another thing that just just hit me hard this week. There, There is no way to cling to sin and not have it turn your heart away from God. 
There's no way. There's no way you can cling to your sin and not have it affect you. I've talked to guys over and over again, oh yeah, I do that on Saturday. It doesn't affect me. I still go worship on Sunday. Dude, you're a liar. Like, it affects you. There's no way you can cling to sin and not have it turn you away from God. So when we cling to anything other than God as our source of satisfaction, fulfillment, purpose, we're basically becoming one flesh with that thing. We're clinging to it. And we think that that'll, that'll be what will ha- help us find lasting happiness, right? Work, family, status, hobbies, alcohol, drugs, porn, women, whatever it is, it's not gonna work. Nothing will satisfy you. Nothing will give you what you're deeply seeking after. Do you know why? I get the next slide up because I would like to say this together. Oh, sorry, not that one. I know you're trying to read my mind. Uh, I must have had them out of order. Is, is the same phrase we've been thinking of. Because God has created and designed you so that it is impossible for us to find lasting happiness in anything apart from him. Thank you very much. Can we say that together? Except let's personalize it. Say God created me in such a way that it is impossible for me to find lasting happiness in anything apart from him. Can we say that together? All right, let's go. God has created me in such a way that it is impossible for me to find lasting happiness in anything apart from him. So guys, here's a valuable truth that we can learn from Solomon's story. Sorry, you can go back to the other next slide (laughs) that was in order there. The pursuit of satisfaction often results in idolatry and adultery. You might not be going to worship at a pagan high place, but if anything is taking place of God in your heart, we're just as guilty as Solomon is. And I know this is something we've heard a lot before, but I actually would like you to talk about this at your tables for a minute. Let's take this this truth. The pursuit of satisfaction often results in idolatry and adultery. And there's three questions there on your table. And I actually would like the person wearing the most blue to be the table leader and to lead to the, and lead to this. So whoever's wearing the most blue at your table, you won and you get to lead. Take like five or six minutes and discuss those questions on your sheet. I believe it's side one. Greatly appreciate all the discussion as I was walking around, heard some really great stuff. Um, you know, when we, when we pursue the satisfaction in those ways, kind of like from that song, when we look at love, when we look for love in all the wrong places, we usually find ourselves loving all the wrong things. And uh, what we need is a true pursuit of, of love that truly satisfies. And I think I heard from a couple tables, we, we know the answer, that love, that satisfaction, that fulfillment is only found in a passionate, active, and intentional relationship with Christ. And, uh, and I heard little, little bits and pieces from people just talking about different things. So thank you for sharing and talking. And um, <clears throat> we'll have another opportunity to do that hopefully again tonight. So Solomon pursued satisfaction kind of as, as one thing. I want to point out one more thing that Solomon pursued. Um, 
another dangerous road, right? Satisfaction led him down one road uh, and made some mistakes. Eventually, he came to the second mistake, and it's pursuing something called syncretism. Now, in the world of missions, we use that term a lot. It might not be a term that you're, you're used to using, and that's fine. Uh, it's just really a fancy way of saying wanting the best of everything that's available and like putting it all together into one, so mixing things together. Uh, so we're still in 1 Kings. Look at chapter 11 still. Let's read verses 4 through 8, and then we'll talk about that idea of syncretism. For when Solomon was old, <clears throat> excuse me, when, when uh, Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a, built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all of his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Solomon found himself in a very dangerous place that didn't feel so dangerous. If you've ever been in one of those type of situations. Uh, when we served in Liberia, we had, I did a lot of training with national pastors or with men who felt like God was calling them to, to ministry. And a lot of the national pastors and a lot, there were some national pastors that uh, we got to know that were already kind of ministering when we got there. And uh, you'd go to their church on Sunday and they would stand behind the pulpit, you know, proclaiming, thus says the Lord, this is God's word. Um, and then the longer we, the longer you live somewhere, the kind of more you see behind, you know, the facade. And the longer we were there, I got to know that some of these men, they would stand up on Sunday morning and they would preach from the Bible. And then they would go out into the bush to the witch doctor that afternoon and put a curse on someone or pay to protect themselves from being cursed. Or often people would go to a, a junction in the middle of the forest, the rainforest, where two roads would cross. And at that junction, you put a, a, a leaf, a palm or banana leaf or down on the ground. Uh, you put a cola nut, which is this just little tree nut there. Um, and then you would kill a chicken or put some other type of sacrifice on that leaf. And what that did is that was an offering to the ancestors that would promise you a productive farm that season. So, so they, would, they would preach God's word on Sunday because Christianity can be profitable. You know, we need to tip that God. Uh, and then they would go to the bush and they would make sure that this God was also appeased. That, that's syncretism. That, that's taking pagan things and mixing them with, with uh, Christianity. And... <clears throat> Those men lived like there was nothing wrong. Uh, and everyone in the church knew what was going on, but because they were so steeped in cultural things, nobody said anything about it. Um, they wouldn't talk about it. You know, it, it's like, there's a lot of models for things, but all models have like, their imperfections, right? So here's an, an idea of a model that probably has a lot of flaws, but... You know, it's like if you had a big pitcher and you put a cup of the world's finest coffee in it. All right, this is coffee, right? But then what happens when you pour 
you know, 32 ounces of water in that pitcher now. Is it still coffee? Kind of, yeah. It's still there in there somewhere. What if you poured another 32 ounces of water in there? Is it still coffee? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) It looks more like dirty water. Maybe it's tea now. (laughs) Put another 32 ounces of water. Is it still coffee? We really don't know what it started out as now because it's lost all resemblance of what it truly was at one time. That's kind of like syncretism. It's adding things together so that everything gets so blended together that you can't even tell what it really was in the beginning. So it no longer resembles faith. So how do we fall into that trap? Again, because we're all really good at justifying what we want to do. Okay, put, your, put yourself in the Liberian's shoes, pastor. Well, if I go to the witch doctor, then it'll help the church. Right? The church will have a good farm. We need, we need to have the church to have a good farm. You know, our farm will be successful. Then I could make money, and what did I do with it? I'll give it to the church. All right, so I need to do this. Um, if I say yes to this thing, even though I know it's wrong, then it'll make my wives and kids happy. You're, you know, we can always justify things. My guess is that Solomon wasn't all that different. Okay, well, I've got to keep these 700 wives and 300 girlfriends happy. So what do I, so what do? I do? Um, I'll, keep, I'll let them keep their gods. Uh, I mean, they're fake anyway, right? What could it hurt? I'll just pacify them. I mean... It, if it helps me get what I want and I'm a pretty wise guy, I'm sure it must be a good decision. Again, like we get it, right? How many of us have ever done things we didn't want to do because our wives or kids asked us to? I know I have. (laughs) Maybe I'm alone in this one, but um, let's assume that Solomon did it to pacify his wife, his wives. Okay, it's a great excuse. We can understand where you're at, Solomon. We get it. A thousand people coming at you. Well, verse five kind of kills that thought. Look at verse five. It says, for Solomon's wives went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. And then look at verse six. And Solomon's wives did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Is that what your translation says? I've got this new English one, so it's a little... No, I don't think any of your translations say that. What does it say? For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, Milcom, Molech. Okay, verse five says that Solomon went after these gods. Okay, Solomon, he didn't allow them in the kingdom just to pacify his wives. The text says that he's the one that went after them. The phrase went after in this context could also be translated as pursue or to behave like. So what was Solomon going after? Okay, Solomon was pursuing something. Let me, let me show you what he was pursuing because words like Ashtoreth and Milcom probably don't mean a ton to us. Ashtoreth was the goddess of war, among other things. She was like, you've heard of the god Baal or Baal? She was like his girlfriend, she was like the female counterpart to that. Um, Milcom, also known as Molech, if you read through Judges and other parts of the Old Testament, you'll see that name come back up. Um, again, doesn't mean much to us, but it would have meant a lot to the original readers. When you say that name to these original readers, it would have shocked them to realizing how horrible it was. Milcom, 
or Molech, was the God to whom children were burned in sacrifice. You see references to this God in, in Judges, Second Kings, Isaiah, Ezekiel, when Israelites were actually worshiping this false God. So here's, again, something to kind of think about as we're going through this. When you see uh, the God Molech referred to in Scripture, it, it becomes this symbol for everything that was terrible and evil and pagan in this, in this religions of Canaan. When the people of Israel adopted the practices of Molech in worship, it reflects that they had become utterly and completely corrupt. The fact that Solomon pursued, went after the god Molech, makes a pretty big statement about his spiritual condition. The writer is pointing to us, he's pointing out to us how bad Solomon's heart had become. The worshipers of Molech would heat this iron metal image of a human type person um, up to the point where it would glow red. It was so hot. And then they would take their children alive and lay them on this glowing red hot metal statue. Just imagine that happening over and over and over again. When the writer in this passage writes Molech, he, he adds this word abomination. It's like every time the writer writes that word, he throws up a little bit in his mouth. It's disgusting. Solomon, with all of his wisdom, with all of his wealth, pursued and behaved like these pagan gods and all their practices. Like how heartbreaking is that? Instead of pursuing the Lord, he pursued these false gods. So guys, when our hearts are turned away from the Lord, we can justify almost anything. One pastor I know, actually a church that used to support us, and I've heard, I've sadly heard this account from more than one person, um, different pastors, but that Again, the idea of we can justify anything. He was one of our supporting church pastors when we were <clears throat> in Africa. He, um, it came out that he was having an affair with his secretary, which I think one year when we were on furlough, like four of our supporting churches had that happen. So pretty, pretty bad. Um, but they would go to a hotel. They would pray together. They would have a Bible study. And then they would have sex. You can justify anything in your mind. So if our hearts are not pursuing the Lord, we can justify anything. You can see Solomon went down that road. So when you, why do you think the leadership at Maranatha is so focused on teaching and preaching the word? Because the word of God is what the spirit of God uses to turn our hearts to the Lord. Not theatrics, not technology, not cultural relativism, not affirming everyone's opinions or preferences, not politics, not current events. Okay, those things aren't necessarily bad in themselves, some of them, but they're idols in our age that lead our hearts away from the Lord. 
So there are so many things that are being promoted in churches across the, the, the country, the world, that have nothing to do with God. They have to do with the world's agendas, being promoted as Christianity, when in reality, they're directly from Satan. They're syncretism. They're mixing together, watering down to get us off track. God's word and his spirit are the only things that will truly change the hearts of men. And it's impossible. See if you remember it. You only said it once, so you might not remember yet. It's impossible for me to find lasting happiness in any pursuit apart from God. Okay, guys, here's another valuable truth that I think we see come, come from this is that the pursuit of syncretism, right, the pursuit of merging all the available options together often results in our attitudes and affections being turned away from the Lord. It, it often happens. We often turn away from the Lord. The rest of the book of Ecclesiastes, well, I really want you to discuss this one too. We're done at nine, right? <laughs> Some of you are like, we're done at 8.05, dude. You need to... Um, The rest of the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon's account of how pursuing lasting happiness and the secret to success apart from God. So if you read through Ecclesiastes, that's kind of what you get. I won't take the time to do this, but I would encourage you to think through the question on side, on side two of your page there. What experiences have you pursued like when have you experienced this, the pursuit of best, the best of both worlds and how it's led you away from the Lord? Again, I'm sure that we have some of those experiences at our table, but I would encourage you just to think about that, reflect on that. Think about how did God deliver you from that? If not, if he hasn't delivered you from it, what steps should you take? Because if we're not pursuing the Lord, we will have our affections turned away from him if we're pursuing anything else. So Solomon figured that out, okay? He, the wisest guy in the world, does this social experiment throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And at the end, he finally comes to find what is the secret to success. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard, okay? You want the secret to success? Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Like Solomon had that secret to success like all along. Remember back what David told him when David first made him king? What did David tell him back in 1 Kings chapter two? Solomon, you need to pursue God, obey his word, and everything in you and your kingdom will be well. So the secret he had from the beginning. In the, in the book that kind of inspired the, the theme for this series, uh, the writer points something out. And um, I wouldn't build like a theology on this thought, but I, I do see it practically lived out in our lives. 
um, is this. You know, God graciously gives us resources, but then often we use or abuse them, not based on God's intentions, but based on our fallenness. Does that make sense? So the writer suggests this, that God deals with us in three ways. He will withhold the thing that we can't live without. Right? He'll withhold it from us, whether it's money, relationships, or he will remove the very thing that you can't live without. Again, maybe money, relationships, or, which I think is Solomon's case here, he will give us so much of it that we gag on it. Solomon had so much wisdom He had so much wealth. He had so much power. He had so much pleasure that he choked on it. And again, I I don't want you to take that thought in the wrong way that that God is this being on a throne that's like, oh yeah, I'm gonna give Bruce so much that he chokes. No, God, God is a gracious and good God. It's our sinfulness that takes his resources and uses them the wrong way. Guys, how is God dealing with you? Is God allowing one of these situations to take place in your life? Right, is he he withholding something from you? Is he, he, has he taken something from you? Or, or, Or do you have so much of something that you're literally choking on it? It's, it's very well that God might be just trying to get your attention. So as we think about Solomon and try to wrap, wrap up for tonight, You know, other than Jesus, none of the people recorded in the Bible were perfect, right? There were flaws uh, in all of them. But there's many people that are still worthy for us to emulate and model our lives after. Many of the men in this series, actually. Abraham, Lot, well, Abraham, maybe Lot, probably not. (laughs) Um, Joseph, (laughs) Moses, David, None of them were perfect. But you know what? Every single one of them, that those names that I just listed, you'll find in Hebrews 11, what we call the hall of faith. I mean, even a guy like Samson, who is probably one of the most self-centered, full of themselves guys in the Bible, is in Hebrews 11. Why were all these men listed there? Because no matter their faults, They believed. They placed their faith completely in the promises of God. And God recorded them as examples of faith. Do you know whose name that I cannot find in Hebrews 11? Solomon. The wisest man ever to live, the richest, most successful guy to ever live isn't there. Why? Because his heart was turned away from the Lord. Solomon put his pursuit of satisfaction, his love for pleasure, before his love for the Lord. And the, and the worst part of it, it makes me sick to think about all the times that I've done the same thing. Solomon started off really well. The Lord was pleased with him but he didn't finish well. And the kingdom was eventually torn away from him, torn apart. 
Guys, God makes it impossible for us to find lasting happiness in anything apart from him. Here's some advice, and a lot of people, a lot of you already know this. Don't be like Solomon, at least not in this way. (laughs) Get a better role model. But I would encourage you to learn from his mistakes. Right? Find lasting happiness in the pursuit of God. So how should we respond? And then guys will pray. Um, stop chasing after satisfaction. Right? Stop chasing after the best of all the available options. Pursue God. Right? Desire in your heart to glorify him in all that you do. Find satisfaction in him alone. We won't dig into it, maybe for another time, but cultivate an environment for success. You think, well, how do you do that? Take advantage of the D groups and the, the discipleship groups and the connect groups and ABF and mutual accountability. Actually, if I could take a minute and share this with you, because this broke my heart last week. So I, I deal with um, missionaries that are on the field that are just going through different hard things uh, with the mission agency that we work with. And um, also do debriefs when they come on furlough, kind of debrief, how was the last four years? What'd you struggle with? What'd you see God do? Uh, what were you encouraged by? And this one individual who grew up in this uh, foreign country uh, as an MK and then now is there as a missionary, um, I had asked him, I asked every missionary, who do you have on the field that's like a local shepherd, like a, a shepherd for you? Doesn't mean that they're a pastor, but a friend, an acquaintance, a, a co-worker, a national believer that, that is, is just kind of like holding you accountable, checking on your spiritual health, seeing how you're doing. Uh, and this was his answer. I don't need accountability. I don't need anyone to check on me and see how I'm doing, to make sure I'm on track. I have God and he does that. Well, praise the Lord, we have God, and, and he does do that. Um, but that was one of the saddest things I've heard in a long time. Um, someone to say, I don't need that. I've heard that before. But it was from a man who was on the field for years and one day snapped and left a wake behind him of broken lives, adultery, immorality, that some of it you can't fix. Man, don't be that guy. (laughs) We all need accountability, right? We all need someone to one another us. And that's why this is so great. We're all here to one another each other, to talk at our tables, uh, to help each other, to to help us to grow in grace in the Lord. So we started looking at Solomon's story tonight and I asked you a question. Why is this here? Right, do you remember that? Well, I think it's here so that we will have to show us that having unmatched wealth, unmatched wisdom, unmatched power, unmatched pleasure, where that'll lead us. And so that none of us can ever say, you know, if I only had blank, then I would be happy. Because you know what? Solomon had everything in the world to fill in that blank and he wasn't happy. He wasn't happy. So guys, I would encourage you to consider 
How can these conclusions from Solomon's life help keep me on track? Or how can I help someone else stay on track? Right? Pursue God. In him is where you'll find true lasting happiness. Nowhere else. Amen. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord and God, again, we just thank you for our time together. We thank you for who you are, that you love us, that you give us your word, that you give us your spirit, that you give us brothers here that are willing to come alongside us and hold us accountable and um, help us to confront sin and just help us to, to be more like you. God, yeah, we know that you are transforming us more and more into the image of your son. And God, that's a work that only your spirit can do. But God, you have given us the church. You've given us brothers who can come alongside us and help as part of that process. And God, I pray that every man here would take advantage of the resource that you've given him that is the local church, that is the men's ministry. And uh, God, that we would not seek satisfaction, desire, pleasure in anything other than you. God, help us truly have the wisdom that you give and never lose sight of the fact that you've given it and that you give satisfaction, you give happiness. Lord, thank you for all the gifts that you give and I pray for every man here that he would find that satisfaction in you and wouldn't try to fill it with something temporary, something empty, something that's gonna just leave him grasping after smoke. God, just thank you so much that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.